You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us uh, Shikha Malviya who's written Anandibai Joshi a life in poems. Hi Shikha. Hello, thank you so much for having me Manjula. It's it's just you know an honor to be here. Hey Shikha, you know I mean I just uh, I, I mean I had I hadn't read you before sorry but I you know I just picked up this book and <laughs> you know, yes. and I just leapt right into it and I found it lovely. I mean it, it's really I mean I know knew about Anandibai Joshi but I you brought her to life in your book. So you know do you want you know, I mean and you've spoken about it in the preface you know why you know how, how you came right, to like right. write this book. But for the listeners, do you want to like, you know, tell them why Arandibai Joshi, you know, though, like, she's a marvelous woman, but right. then there have been many marvelous women, you know, why Arandibai Joshi? So, as you said, there have been many marvelous women, but how many of them do we actually know? How many can we actually name? I mean, maybe, you know, in, at least where I'm from, the north part of India, they'll say Chhansi Ki Rani, or they'll say Meera Bai, or they'll name, I mean, figures that are from several centuries ago, or mythological or mythical figures like Sita and things like that. But when it comes to women who lived, you know, just a century ago, um, or even two centuries ago, usually you cannot name them, right? I mean, some might say a political leader like Indra Gandhi, or some might, you know, say, uh, you know, somebody from the independence movement, one or two women, but, you know, it doesn't come up like, oh, this person or that person. So I went in search of the first Indian woman to come to the United States because I lived there and I partially grew up there. And the narrative we usually hear is that, we moved here because our parents moved here and i thought there has to be someone who has come before that and so i wanted to know more about my roots as a south asian immigrant and so that's why i uh, searched uh, for that and anandibai's photograph popped up and it was such a riveting photograph a black and white photograph of her dressed in a sari and next to her is a japanese woman wearing a kimono and next to that woman was a syrian um doctor dressed in um you know a headdress of coins etc and when i saw that photograph i thought this is amazing that these three women from different countries all converged in philadelphia in 1886 and and i just wanted to know more especially when i saw anandibai because she had this mona lisa like look that no matter where you approach photograph from you could see her looking directly at you and she just ra- radiated this fierce confidence and um i just wanted to know who she was and that's how it started <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah, and that fa- uh, that famous photograph, I mean, it went viral, like you mentioned in your preface, right? And I remember right. seeing it too, like when it went viral. And it keeps popping up again and again, you know, on right. social right. media all the time. But uh, uh, it's amazing that you saw that and you thought of, you know, like writing a book of poetry on her, you know. Uh, so, but what, what were the, I mean, you, in your poems, you've brought her to life, you know, I mean, she's, she comes from a, a complicated era in our history and when it comes to women's absolutely absolutely it it is yes and, yes it is very complicated yeah, yeah. and uh, let's see how do i um so she does come from a very complicated era and the thing which resonated with me was is that even though that era was complicated and she faced different challenges you know you would think that by now some of those challenges would have been you know uh reduced and the same challenges she had are challenges which i have faced and that's what shocked me even more and so uh i connected to her on that level and and also on the level that she traveled from india to the united states and people looked at her uh, they regarded her as a foreigner and they praised her but at the same time they also thought of her as an object right an exotic yes. object so those were some of the things that i connected with and i could relate to but still the type of challenges that she went through women at the time weren't allowed to leave the home so they didn't wear shoes because women 
didn't need to have shoes. They never stepped out of the chokhat or chokhat, yes. as they say in Marathi, right? Yes. So Anandibai wore shoes. She wore stockings. She stepped out of the chokhat. She went to school. People made fun of her. They spit on her. They told her that, you know, she should be doing housework. She should be taking care of the home, that she should not be pursuing an education at all. But there are several reasons why she did that, right? Yeah. Um, and, her impetus, you know, became much, much stronger when she lost uh, her child after 10 days of uh, childbirth. And then she realized that the women in her, um, you know, town and, and beyond were too afraid to seek medical help because all the doctors were men and 99% of them were European. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are some of her challenges. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, when you look at it, look at her life, you know, it wasn't that long ago. But there's been a whole, I mean, there is a huge change since, uh, in many ways it's the same, but in many ways also it's completely different. I mean, one can't, you know, imagine being a child bride or, you know, having to give birth at 15 and stuff like that. But you've somehow made her very, um, her very contemporary as well. I mean, even a, a contemporary woman can relate to her. So how did you manage that? You know, that's what I'm wondering. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So I think that a lot of the challenges she went through were universal. There were things that, again, we could connect to, like whether it's childbirth, whether it's the loss of a child, whether it's, you know, trying to please everybody around you, because she, she didn't want to upset other people around her. She wanted to be able to, like, you know, please her mother, she wanted to please her husband, but she had such a strong sense of self. And so she was constantly, you know, trying to juggle that. And I think that's something that women today face, right? We want to pursue our own thing, but we also want to make those around us happy. And, you know, patriarchy has a stronghold on us. We are living still in a very patriarchal world. So while things have improved, we we can't say it's an equal world. I don't know if it will ever be an equal world, right? So those challenges still exist. And um, so I think maybe... That's the reason why this book can seem contemporary. And that's what blew me away, actually, when I started doing my research and looking at uh, all the things she went through and the things she said. Like, she said certain things like, uh, we marry before we know what it is for. And, you know, I got married at 21. And yes, I think I also married before I knew what it was for, you know. So she said things like that. And and then she made other comments about how that, uh, you know, if people were irreligious, it would uh, create less problems and we could progress more. This is somebody in the 19th century saying this, right? So there are a lot of things that she said that were so forward thinking and so different than um, what most people thought in that time period. So I think some of that makes the book seem contemporary. I did, though, try my best to capture the language of the 19th century in that. And so the poems are a little more elegant. They are a little more formal. They do have, um, you know, that uh, resonance in terms of form also, which is why I use different forms, because uh, forms were also invented much earlier. Many of the forms, not all of them, but many of them were invented much earlier. So I did do that. But these are forms we still read today in this day and age. So I think all those things make for the book in some ways, maybe a little timeless, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so which is your, do you want to read one, uh, read a poem that you like, you know? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Um, so since you were talking about that photograph, Maybe I should read the poem I've written about that photograph. Okay, great. That's a nice one. Yeah, let me get to it. Let me just find it. Aha. Okay, here we go. So it's called, When They Ask Us to Pose for a Photograph at the Women's Medical College Reception, Philadelphia, 1885. Forgive us if we don't smile. The ocean scent still on our clothes. Still on our clothes, the stench of sea. We, visitors of another clime, of warmer lands are we. With pride we wear our native clothes, silks and jewels we proudly don. Sari, kimono, headdress of coins, with lyre, sash, a hand-held fan. No scalpel, stethoscope, or degree. Three female doctors of foreign pedigree, playing dress-up for Western eyes. In our appearance, they see worlds wild. Forgive her if we don't 
smile. <laughs> and they don't smile. The three of them, neither. I mean, no. I, you know, they do not. <laughs> You know, and I don't know if it was the time period, but when I saw that photograph, at first it mesmerized me, but then I started looking at it more closely, and I saw the wallpaper behind, I saw the poses they were in, and then I thought of who is taking that photograph. It's obviously an American male taking the photograph. Did he ask them to wear those native clothes? Did he? Or did he tell them to sit in a certain way? Did he tell them to hold certain props? And they're three doctors and they have nothing that they're holding that signifies they're doctors, right? That's true. So the more I looked at the photograph, the more fascinating it became to me. But just the presence of these three women far away from home somehow overrides all of that. Yeah, yeah. And it also made me think, you know, perhaps we are not used to uh, photographs where people do, aren't smiling. And apparently then there was right, this right. long article which I read, which said that people only started smiling sometime around the 60s because of, a, uh, uh, I don't know, I think um, some photography company, which were, I mean, one of the big ones. I see, I see. <laughs> had a, had or a, maybe advertising right. campaign which kind of encouraged people to smile. Uh, I you see. Know? <laughs> But, um, or it could be that they were, you know, they had to act modest and that, they, that smiling means that, you know, they're being over friendly. And, yes. You know, who knows what the mores and, you know, <laughs> yeah. behaviors at the time were supposed to be in terms of that. It's interesting because when Anandibai went to the United States, their people used to, you know, kiss each other on the cheek in greeting. And so she actually wrote to her husband, Gopal Rao, and said, when we meet, is it okay if I kiss you on the cheek or should we shake hands like friends? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I wrote then, about that. You know? Yes, and just that yeah. sentence made me think of how, 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 what a great, uh, you know, distance she's traveled, right? Right, right, right. You yeah, know? absolutely. Uh, all alone, that too. I mean, it's not like she took a flight. She was on a ship. She had to change um, her. Uh, she uh, disembarked in London. Then from London, she had to take another ship to New York. So from from um, Calcutta to London to um, uh, New York, all alone. Yeah. And there's it, a stop it, in Egypt she, as well, no? Somewhere? I think a stop in uh, Egypt. I think, yes, yes, she did. I think Sri Lanka, Egypt, and um, then London. And um, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure they stopped somewhere else in between in Europe as well, maybe Germany. Um, but yes, she did. And, and um, you know, she just imagined, you know, she, she had been to a few cities in India, and then here she was seeing the world, you know, for the first time. Yeah, yeah. And all, all alone. It must have been, I don't know, she's in a, a pre-everything. Yeah, I was saying pre-social media. Okay, this is so far, beyond, you know, so long ago that even that was... You know, to travel like that really is something. Right, right, right. Exactly. And she was vegetarian. So she yeah. um, refused to eat the meats that um, they had. Um, instead, um, you know, she ha had to eat boiled vegetables or boiled potato or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she she survived all of that and she stood, you know, her ground in terms of what she would or wouldn't eat. And, you know, they would, there was something I call, uh, there was some sort of beef soup, I forget what it was called, but it was a watery broth and they were like, this does not have meat, you can have this, but <laughs> she did not have that as well. <laughs> right. So the challenge, you know, of, of being vegetarian, you know, yeah. and and um, Western people saying, oh, but this doesn't have any pieces of meat. She faced that as well. <laughs> that, that's a very common thing. I thought, you know, it made me think of this, right. you know, when you go to Italy and they offer you, ask for something vegetarian, they offer you, you know, I don't know, tuna yeah. sandwiches. <laughs> exactly, exactly. exactly. So I face that as well. <laughs> So those are funny things in that uh, poem where she's on the on the ship and and she mentions this about you know uh, using a fork to move around her potatoes and uh, and people looking at her askance for, right. for her diet you know right 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 so right are, so you know, which brings me you've mentioned that you right. that your source material were these two particular books do you want to talk about right. them you know? Sure. So those two books, it's interesting because um, yesterday at, at Sophia College, I had an event and they also asked me about my research and my sources. And somebody asked me, were those 
were these two books similar? And actually these two books that I used, one was by um, a Western, um, I think she called herself a Western reformer feminist of the time. Her name was Caroline Healy Dahl. And she had met Anandibai while Anandibai was in the United States. And she was very, very impressed with Anandibai. And when Anandibai passed away, her death was you know, very untimely at the age of 21. Um, Caroline Healy Dahl was really crushed and decided to write a biography of Anandibai within a year of her passing. So a lot of you know incidents and things she had said, everything was very fresh in her mind. And so she and she also consulted Anandibai's husband Gopal Rao and um, Anandibai's hostess, um, Mrs. Theodosia Carpenter. Um, she gathered a lot of facts from them and she wrote this biography. And the while this biography is colored by the Western gaze, one could say, it still had so much um, detail in terms of things Anandibai said, things she did, what she wore, how Western people regarded her, how she was received. So in that sense, this book was invaluable. And then the second book, which I used, uh, it's called The Life and Letters of Anandibai Zoshi. And that's by Mira Kosambi, who was a Marathi scholar. And sadly, the book was published posthumously. But that book, it because it was a Marathi woman from the 21st century who had written it, her approach was very different culturally. And um, she also drew from the, the, the first book that I drew from as well. But she also was able to add in her own research and text she had access because she could read and write in Marathi. So um, that text was very valuable for me as well, because it gave more insight into Anandibai's relationship with her husband, Gopal Rao, and um, also within her family, etc. So those two books um, really, really helped me in um, recognizing where Anandibai's voice was in all of this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, now that you're mentioning Gopal Rao, you know, I mean, when we, when we read about the marriage, like as, you know, women in 2023, you're, at right. first you're filled with horror, like, because, I mean, it is horrific for us. We've moved so far away from that. You know, to see uh, an eight-year-old child getting married to, you know, somebody who's like 16, 16 years old years older, older. yeah older correct, than her, right and right. Uh, and you think my god what is this and, and of course the marriage is consummated later but even then she's just 13 or something right when when right. she has a period very young yeah and uh that whole thing where the husband comes to her and, and you're thinking oh my god you know and you've brought out the horror of that but also how it makes you think of how one is so judgmental i mean this is what i thought of judgment, ju right. judgmental of our own ancestors as well in many ways now. Right, right, right. right. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely, because at that time, fortunately or unfortunately, that was the norm, right? So I don't think they thought uh, too much about, oh, she's only eight or nine and he's uh, 26, right? I, I don't think they focused on that. But, but what I wondered about was, is that this was a girl who was playing with her dolls. This was a girl who, you know, was very in, uh, innocent in many ways. Um, you know, she was brought up like a son because um, uh, she had brothers, other siblings um, who were male and she'd wrestle with them and things like that. So did anyone teach her about her body? Did anybody teach her about sexuality? Um, and in those times, even um, until recently, right, like mothers and daughters wouldn't talk openly about changes that happen in your body. And so I wondered, what did she go through when 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 she had to consummate her marriage? I'm sure it was very shocking for her. I'm sure it was not something she welcomed at all, because I don't think she knew what it was that that she was getting into. Right. So I wanted to capture that as well. And, you know, she's perceptive. She's smart. You know, so I tried to imagine what it might have been like at that time. And um, later on, the fact that she wanted to become a doctor, right? So she must have been cognizant of all of these things that yes. going through childbirth, pregnancy, you know, and, and then the, this compulsion to help the women of her land. So all of that must have informed, you know, her desire to become a doctor. So mm -hmm. I wanted to build up on that and show that. And so that's why I wanted to bring in sexuality as well, because I think it's it's a very important thing that's overlooked, especially in that era. Yes. And also, you know, the figure of Gopal Rao himself, I mean, like one tends to think of people like this as, I mean, I don't know, villains now. Okay. But um, uh, clearly in that 
he's a man of his time and he runs away you there's that reference where he runs away to find a widow to to marry to remarry and i found i mean i i didn't know about this but i read it in the poem and i was thinking it made me think of the pressures of men then as well they were as much a victim of the that whole oppressive caste hierarchy and clearly he also wanted to break out which is why he allowed his wife this very young wife right right right, so, right. You know, so at that time okay. also i think there was this um pressure to show you were educated and somehow different like there was this whole idea of becoming a reformer this whole um you know i think it was uh, this idealistic uh, type of uh, notion that you know to show i'm intellectual i'm progressive i'm different yes. so um i think he was in love with the concept of that which is why he didn't care who it was whether it was a widowed woman um i, I in many ways i i even wrote this in a poem in many ways that anandi bai was his consolation prize because he was widowed he wanted to marry a, a widowed woman so that he could you know say yes i'm a reformer i'm progressive but when he couldn't find one he said okay i'll marry this you know 8 or 9 year old girl instead um so they had a very complicated relationship i think he cared about her but he also cared about himself and what people thought of him and i think in many ways he was living vicariously through her this is my personal opinion you know because she wanted to be educated so i did read a lot about him but you know i wanted it to be about her so i didn't want to put in him as much but he wanted uh, to go and study in england but that didn't happen and i think all of his unfulfilled desires somehow he thrust that upon anandi bai but then anandi bai had her own awakening and even though he was pushing her for his own agenda she realized that she could do her own thing within his agenda <laughs> you know um, so it's it was very complicated i mean he encouraged her like you know to go to school he encouraged her to wear he bought her shoes and told her to wear them he um would walk towards the sea and tell her walk along with me which men and women never did at that time and so you know he was progressive but was he progressive because he believed in it or was he progressive because he wanted to show others he was progressive you know, there's a lot of um conflicting information out there so he i think he did love her but but i mean he used to beat her up initially he um you know encouraged her to go to the us and said adjust in any way possible if you have to change the way you wear your clothes do that if you need to eat eggs eat eggs if you need to eat meat do that he told her all of that and she didn't necessarily do that but she did start eating eggs because she was getting weak and then he suddenly accused her of changing and becoming westernized even though that's the advice he, he had given her so a lot of double standards because <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So that's why we can connect to that even now, you know. Yeah. 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 It's it's amazing. It it's amazing how many layers of uh the onion you can peel here and and then just say, "Wow, I can't believe that happened to her. That's happened to someone I know or that's happened to me or I see that every day, right?" Um Yeah. 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 Okay. and uh, you know so i wondered also after she died i mean you know and he sends her ashes and she's she's yeah. uh, and they were in within the family carpenter family plot right yeah. right now in right. new york so in rural new york that's what i read at the end of the book i think yeah yeah for tipsy new york yeah yeah that also must have been such a, i mean it's so unusual in 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 its own way very very unusual so um when anandi bai first arrived in the united states um at the um home of her host there was an autograph book uh that she filled with um you know th- they asked questions like what's your favorite color where's your favorite place things like that and she wrote in there my favorite place is roselle new jersey which is where um theodosia carpenter and family live and she wrote roselle new jersey and after that heaven so i think the type of freedom she experienced on coming to the united states because a different kind of freedom where she got to know who she was apart from being somebody's wife or being somebody's mother or being uh, somebody's daughter um or being a doctor she she could discover other things about herself she she experienced a certain sense of freedom and so i think for that reason 
she loved um you know being there and the type of love which was showered upon her by theodosia carpenter was something she didn't receive from her own mother and so i think that's why she you know felt um you know a special bond with uh, theodosia carpenter and her family and so as she was dying i think she expressed this last wish to gopal rao that even though i'll be cremated in the proper hindu manner i want my ashes to rest with the carpenter family so indeed that is something really really unusual unheard of and when i discovered that i was blown away to think that india's first female doctor her ashes have been interred in the united states in new york it, it, it's pretty amazing um and i hope you know i i will get to visit that uh, gravestone and pay my respects to her there as well i did visit her house in pune where she pa- passed away it's still standing uh, it is so now that's the bharat gayan sabha and um i think they it's the same house but they cemented it before it was wood and brick and things like that but there's a small plaque there that says this is where anandibai joshi was born and where she passed away i'm not sure if that's where she was born but she did pass away there and it's in a very very busy part of um town in pune and i we managed to find it even though it was so crowded and um, there was so much hustle bustle but i i did go and pay my respects there and um next will hopefully be pokipsi new york and to see the headstone where she rests but yeah it, it's 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 something unheard of i've never heard of such a thing before Mm-hmm. and she probably died in that house in pune because uh, there's one point yeah. i mean where i don't know whether you got you imagined it or you got it from some one of her letters of her husband where she talks about her mother uh, feeding her everything that she wanted and she kind of like makes uh, a comment that it's she didn't do it in her childhood but she's making up for it now <laughs> you exactly, know exactly exactly <laughs> yeah and that kind of so some of that yeah Yeah some of that is imagined but some of that is also true because I did read in certain accounts that you know when she was sick then her mother came her mother stayed with her and um because she had tuberculosis the doctors recommended that she um be in Pune because the air there was better and yes. so her mother's um home, maternal home was there and um so that's why then she stayed there and what i read was according to Gopal Rao and others is that uh anandibai died in her mother's lap mm-hmm. um and that her last words that she uttered were mother so um i have put those things the very last poem in fact you know she says you know mother but i have taken some creative liberties in imagining how things might have been but most of it most of what i have done everything which seems factual probably is factual and i've also at the back provided a bibliography for each yes. poem i've listed you know where i drew that fact from so that people can um if they want to you know they can see oh okay where did this come from or where did that come from or if i want to read more about something where can i find it so i did try to list those things as best as i could in the back of the book Mm-hmm. yeah i saw that it's pretty detailed i mean you know i thought oh so you know these are from the letters and this is from the uh, uh from you know from this book and i don't think many poets do that <laughs> actually <laughs> you know? yeah um, it, it, it i mean it, i love to read footnotes and i love to read you know glossaries and things like that and in this case because it is based on a, a real historical figure and uh, because i made the conscious choice to write in her imagined voice i wanted to make sure that i could present the facts properly so that if anyone did have any doubts or if anyone did have any questions i wanted to say well you know here is where i got this from i mean does this mean that what i've written is 100% accurate i cannot guarantee that but it's based on my research whatever i found um this is the best way i could back it up you know mm-hmm. so you know that's what made me wonder how you created poetry out of like out of this you know out of a uh, out of a historical figure because and and you say it yourself and supposing it did and uh, was i the right person to undertake this task i was a poet after all and not a historian so clearly you thought about that too so you know take yes. us to that you know that the whole 
thing that went on in your head about this? Right, right. Well, I mean, the story didn't let go of me. I, I tried, you know, my best to shrug it off, so to speak. <laughs> I, I, you know, I gave myself as many excuses that I could, but um, because I am not a historian. But then, you know, there are many history books that are riveting, but there are also many that are dry and boring, right? And then, um, you know, there, there's poetry that people associate with. Oh well, you know, I, I like love poetry, or I want, uh, I want to read poetry about, you know, my own emotions. So, could the function of poetry also be a biography? Could it also be history? These are the things I was thinking about. And poetry is such a valuable genre, and it's such a powerful genre because you can um, write things in such a compact way that yes. by the time I went through all of my doubts, I was like. Well, why not poetry? It, I think it's the perfect genre to, um, you know, write an alternate history. And so I took the plunge. It was a risk, and um, I, I'm hoping that people will agree that that risk worked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it worked. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. Um, because this is like what I love writing the most. I love poetry as a genre, and it's the genre that I'm most comfortable in. And um, I love history as well. I love. I'm very passionate about women's issues, and I thought, why not combine all of that together? And um, you know, he, we can all create our own narratives in different ways. I think this is one of the things I wanted to say with this book that it's important to document narratives, and it doesn't have to be do documented in a traditional way or in a typical way or in a dry way. There are many different ways in which we can examine and um, you know document narratives. So. This is my attempt. Mm -hmm. And your preface is also very interesting in that it points uh, points the reader to, you know, I mean, I, I haven't read these poets. So even that, you know, I found very interesting because uh, uh, Dominique Christina's hearing powerful book, uh, Anaka Speaks, A History in Poems. You know, I looked to others who had undertaken the monumental task of bringing voices of the past to light and drew inspiration from the poems of I don't know how to spell, uh, pronounce this person. Taimba Jess. Taimba Jess. Yeah, Taimba Jess. Correct, correct. Yes. Who, yes. in his extraordinary okay, polyvocal book, Olio, had yes. given voice to unrecorded African. And then you go on and you list, uh, list a few poets like that. So, you know, I mean, right. even that was quite, I thought, oh, I must read these people, you know. So, but tell it's, me how they inspired your work, you know, like this for so, yeah so um you know the the black community in in the united states uh you know they have a history of oppression and they have a history of not being included in american history right so uh that they have tried to document their history in um different innovative ways so while i was doing my own research i came across different books um in, in which um, black uh, people examined their own history, and it was so riveting to me. In I mean, in 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 many ways, um, and it was surprising to me that oh, you can write about poetry as a poetry, a witness in which you've seen things and experienced things in this manner, uh, and it it is something that uh, there in the United States you see more of it. I mean, here I was hard pressed to find something like that, especially in English in India, but uh, there's, they call it poet, documentary poetry, poetry of witness, historical poetry, historical persona poetry. And when I uh, read these books that I mentioned in the preface, I was just shocked at the different ways in which one could bring these voices to life that had been suppressed. So Tayimba Jess has a poem about these twins that were vaudeville performers. They performed across the United States and they were conjoined twins. So these twins, how did he represent them and their voices? He wrote two poems that are called contrapuntal poems. So contrapuntal means that, you know, you can read them from top to bottom, bottom to top. And in his case, you could read it diagonally from right to left and left to right. But because the, this was a poem about conjoined twins, he joined the poems, the lines of the poems in the middle. So it's not just about the words. It's also about the visual space that these words occupy. And I mean, he's just the master of, of the craft. And when I saw things like that, I attempted some contrapuntal poetry in Anandibai as well, when she and Gopal Rao write to each other, and then when she has a miscarriage as well. But just to see that, there's even a poem in Olio, in fact, where it's like a, a folded page, and 
you can read it, you know, um, from left to right, and then you can roll it. And then, you know, it, it, it make it circular. And then you can read it in that way as well. Wow. There's so many things he has done that, um, you know, it just opened up my mind in terms of how we can play with words, how we can use them as a form of expression in ways that aren't traditional. So yeah. um, then later on, after I'd written this book, actually, I found out about the work of Ruth Padel, who is a British yes. poet. Yes, she's also written about Darwin, um, you know, yes. this in this type of way. She's also written about Beethoven in the same type of way. And um, so there are other people who have done things like this. Um, and it's incredible. Uh, I think we should be writing more, um, you know, in terms of history, in terms of biography, through different genres. Um, so it, it, it's an amazing time to be a writer. It's an amazing time to, you know, have access to all of these different ways of expression. Mm. And when you're talking about those vaudeville acts, you know, it reminds me of this poem where the, the human zoo, I thought that's a brilliant poem, uh, where, you know, she goes to the uh, the menagerie. Circus. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And the Ibisidarian uh, poem. Yes. That's a lovely yes, one. Yes. And this particular bit, till the circus opened my eyes and fill, fill them to the brim, uncivilizes the culture that mocks other ones. And verily, I believe it will be this nation's downfall. And this whole thing about uh, uh, where she says public humiliation in the guise of entertaining. And, you know, and, and it reminded me that when I re first heard about these human zoos, I was appalled. And it was exactly this reaction, you know. It, absolutely. So, um Anandi Bai had written to Theodosia Carpenter um, because Theodosia was in um, uh, New Jersey and Anandi Bai was studying in Philadelphia that she went to see uh, the circus with her friend, that her friend insisted and Anandi Bai didn't want to go, but she finally went, she relented and that she didn't care for it, she didn't like it. So then I started wondering, well, why didn't Anandi Bai like it, you know? And so then I started doing research and then that's where I came across um, you know, what the Barnum and Bailey Circus was doing at that time. And then menagerie of ethnicities and things like that, where they had specimens, but they called them specimens from yes. all over the world, you know? Yes. And I thought that if Anandi Bai witnessed something like this, you know, she herself is a so-called specimen then too, right? Yeah. But she must have been horrified or it must have like, you know, done something to her. And I can understand why she didn't care for it. So was this the reason? I'm not sure. That's where I took some creative liberties and did my research about the circus uh, during that time period and then wrote this A.B. Sidarian because I was so fascinated by what I found out about the circus that I wanted to be able to include all of that as well. So did she see all of these things? Is this why she felt the way she did? I'm not sure. But that was a creative leap that I took. Mm -hmm. And which also brings me to you know, the objectification of the other, which she, with right. the, in the poem, she she realizes that's happening to her with some people, you know. And right. I think in the preface, you mentioned how as a child, as a young person, you felt that as well. So do you want to talk about that, you know, as, as an Indian? In, in, in Sure. So, yeah, absolutely. So um, I lived in uh, Minnesota in the... Um, you know, late 70s and um, till the mid 80s and, and um, then went to India to study and came back again. But when I was growing up, I was the only brown girl and the only Indian girl in my school. And so they really, really regarded me as, you know, being something odd, being different, because virtually almost everybody was blonde haired or very light haired and and nobody really had brown eyes most people had green or blue eyes um and um even though i'm not what you would call dark dark skinned in you know they, they thought of me as really dark and not that that matters i could have been you know color should not matter at all right but they they regarded my color and somehow even though i spoke with a flawless American accent and things like that. Um, they just thought of me as a stranger. They thought of me as the odd one out. And they would tell me to go back to my country, to go back where I came from and um, constantly. And they'd ask questions like, do they wear shoes um, you know, in India? Do you, does your family live in huts? And it's very interesting that they asked similar questions to Anandi Bhai at that time as well, yeah. you know? <laughs> Um, it, it, it's so surprising, right, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that ignorance was then. But 
somehow in anandi bai's experience i felt they were more accepting of things and they celebrated her a lot more in some ways whereas um i think by the time my family came there was there was and maybe there still is in certain places a lot of resentment for immigrants coming and taking the jobs which americans could have if immigrants weren't there you know things like that um so um but but there there still were many commonalities and it was precisely this whole notion of go back to where you came from that sort of imprinted on my mind and several years later thinking about where are we from what are our roots that led me to search for anandi bai on the internet and find her <laughs> yeah. yeah and so, also you know when she that poem where she meets uh, me meets an indian and irikwa indian and uh, you know that conversation yeah. that she has with her and you know did that actually happen or was that also something you no. imagined <laughs> no that is something i imagined that um, is something i imagined Yeah but I thought about it because she did actually she went to an Indian boarding school so at the time yes, there were these yes. um yeah these boarding schools which were meant to civilize um native americans and yeah. uh, the history of that is horrific uh, mm-hmm. if you read about it it's like the aborigines in uh, australia right the same absolutely for absolutely so i wrote a poem on that too um but how did anandi bai feel when she went there again that's imagined so there are certain things definitely in this book that are imagined but uh, i am sure i mean she was so steadfast in holding to her food and her dress that when she went to a hostel where they were asked to obliterate all of that i'm sure she must have had some feelings about it you know yeah, yeah. so so it's very interesting of, of uh, you know where does one you know put in one's own you know um creative leaps and where does one stick to fact and i did try to keep a balance wherever i could the the foremost goal was to have anandi bai's voice in this so I, i hope i stayed true to that but yes of course i did take creative liberties but those are also based on fact if not anandi bai's life then based on the time period and also you know some of the things that struck me when i was reading the book is that you know every anybody who's well let's see a hindu who goes abroad comes across some right. of these things which when i read i i laughed because i mean you know it's funny at, at one level and it's not funny at other levels but right, um, right, right. this thing about when she's in in riding the meridian you know when she's on on the on the ship i think and she says uh, uh, mrs x my companion draws notches in the back pages of a bible of days and nights feigning prayer while she eyes my movements wondering what is it this hindu is reading remarking how no book is as worthy as a black bound one in her hands i know everyone has met people like this so you know yes absolutely like, i've actually marked it and written lol <laughs> <laughs> So that apparently was true that apparently was true that her companion was a very stern woman who felt the bible was uh, you know the most valuable book in the world and that anandi bai should realize that as well and that she was constantly telling anandi bai that you should not be staying with the people you plan to stay with because they're not good christian people that you should stay with me as well because they weren't they weren't enforcing religion upon anandi bai and so that really really bothered uh this woman um so it is very interesting and i wish i could have added more of that but that's the thing with poetry you really have to balance the message with the um you know imagery and the arc of the whole you know in this case because it's a whole life right so yes. there are lots of details i had to omit but I, it still came through obviously because you know you saw that <laughs> and you marked that but yeah she the, people like that truly do exist and that is actually based on fact <laughs> yeah. so you know some of the things some of the poems made me think that you know some things never change i mean like the world has changed but the kind of right. people or the kind of behaviors right. perhaps persist i mean across the ages right absolutely <laughs> absolutely absolutely that's why even though this is so personal in terms of this is about a specific person's life there is so much that we can relate to in here whether it's about you know gender whether it's about religion whether it's about identity you know all of the politics of all of these things are in here right yes yes and still very very relevant yeah yeah this othering especially under the veil of kindness also i thought you know yes 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 
Yeah. How do you see God in stone? Why a bride so young? Are there many women where you come from? <laughs> to them, these yes. are all real questions that she was asked. Yeah, these are all real. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You got those from yeah. the letters, or what? Yes. Yeah. Oh. These, these are actual questions that she was asked. Yes. And those were questions I was asked as I was growing up there. So that's why windows. <laughs> Sorry. Do your homes in India have windows? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, those questions may seem innocent, but they're also like a little bit. You know, I mean, if your homes have windows, why won't our homes have windows? I mean, maybe our windows are smaller. Maybe they're you know the the made a little differently. But you know, these are questions which, in many ways, they offended Anandi by, but not in the sense that she was broken by it or really upset by it. But I think she was a little exasperated because on the one hand they said they would tell her, "Oh, you're so elegant. You're so you know you're so eloquent. You you speak English really well." And then um and and then on the other side they're saying, you know, do do does do your homes have windows? <laughs> Things like that. <laughs> yeah. So she must have really, you know, I, I mean, I can completely understand how she must have felt. <laughs> right? Million yeah. sort of interactions, you know, that's a surprising thing. I mean, one would have thought that over the last century and a half, things would have changed. Right. You know? Exactly. <laughs> So. And they have, but they also have remained the same. And I think that's one of the things that um, you know shocked me. But at the same time, it didn't surprise me because I also lived there. I spent a lot of time there. And um, you know, well, people say the world has grown flatter. There's much more cultural awareness. I think there's also a lot more ugliness that has you know crawled out from under the rugs, so to speak. Right. So um, th there's a lot of polarization you know, about a, about a lot of things, you know, whether you look at religion or culture or history or, you know, look at racism. And um, interestingly, like, I think even like different cultures while living there also have racism. So it's, you know, yes. there's also a lot of reverse racism as well. So, so it's interesting to see how, you know, maybe this is just human nature. This is something that will continue no matter, you know, how things develop. We are going to always always have these issues to tackle right yeah that's that's a bit depressing <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> it is, and yet it's also acceptance that we have to work through this we have to persist we have to push through which is what anandi bai did you know this, yeah. which is why she's so inspirational yeah yeah and 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 she got she got she got tuberculosis while she was in the states right because so that um, so I am not sure. I So she got fall sick quite often. When she was young, she was quite strong, but although she had had smallpox as a child. But then later on, she kept on falling sick in her teen years. And I read somewhere, I'm not sure if this is true, that because of childbirth and other things, um, maybe that attributed to her immunity, you know, being weak. But she was falling sick quite a bit before she came to the United States. And then... While she was in the United States, I believe the first year she was fine, but then she started falling sick a lot in the second year. She has scarlet fever, I believe. And then after that, she kept on, you know, having sore throats and cough and things like that. So it, my sense is that she maybe had a, a weak immune system to begin with, and then things got worse and worse, you know. Um, so it was probably something that she had from before, but wasn't aware of it, which is really, really sad. Yeah. Right. So how long did it take you to do this? It So I started in 2017 to do research and, you know, go through that whole process of should I write this? Should I not write this? But I love doing research. I mean, I, I guess you could call me a research hound or research junkie or whatever you want to say. So I kept on doing the research and then telling myself, no, no, how am I going to do it? It's impossible. It seemed very intimidating. But so from 2017 to 2021, you know, um, yeah, so it took me around four years or so um, to do this. And the actual writing of it happened, though, when COVID happened, yeah. um, because we were all at home. And it seemed like, you know, the whole world had to come to a standstill in order for me to inhabit hers. I, I, I think I've written that in the preface as yes, well. But I, I think I... I think I was able to hear my thoughts and um, some of them came very quickly. And once I had a few poems 
Um, I mean, it, I did not write it chronologically in the beginning. I, I sort of wrote whatever I was inspired to. And I would ask her, I would ask Anandibai, I would look up at the sky and say, Anandibai, what do you want me to write? You know, I literally <laughs> did that. And then whatever would pop in my head, <laughs> I would pursue. And then once I had like, you know, um, I think around 10 poems, then I had a sense of this skeletal structure from which I could build the rest of the narrative. So, yeah. Oh, Oh, you asked Anandibai. I mean, a lot of people say this, you know, when they're writing poetry, that it, it's kind of like a, a communication with the other side. So, so you know, I'm not going to say that her spirit possessed me or in a previous life I was her <laughs> or anything like that. No, yeah, none of that. But, there, but there, I, there was a certain inspiration for sure. There was some sort of numinous connection because... Why? Why? I mean, if you told me like eight years ago, I was going to write this book, I, I would have said no way. You know, I, I feel like in in a sense, she found me, even though I was the one who saw her photograph, but she found me in a strange way. I'm not sure, you know, why I was destined to write this. But, you know, th there's a lot of serendipitous things that happened in, in order for me to write this. And so there is some sort of connection. There is some sort of, um, you know, I don't know what to call it, but it's like a cloud, you know, that floats above your head. And then when, when it's there, you grab it. And that's what I did. I mean, after I noticed the cloud was there and it's not going away. You know? <laughs> so, so, um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things, you know, sometimes I feel like the story chooses you or the muse chooses you, right, and visits you. And um, I have no explanation as to why it, it happened but it was it, it was a special thing it this was very empowering to write as well in many ways um you know i feel like i was able to uh, examine my own voice my own experiences through writing about hers and it was very liberating to be able to you know take someone's story which resounded with me so loudly and to be able to translate that and hopefully give that story back to her because every narrative I read it was all about how her husband helped her how it was her <laughs> husband's goal and, uh, you know his purpose like when she came back and she was celebrated in India for becoming a doctor everywhere in the newspapers it said her husband's goal of educating her his oh, purpose was achieved yeah, they, they didn't give her the credit. And so, you know, I think that infuriated me. <laughs> also. And I, I thought, where is her voice in this? So this project, when I initially started it, was called In Her Own Voice. You know, that, yeah. that's what I have given the working title of this book. Because I really, really wanted to have this be in her voice. So, which, of course, is impossible since I'm not her. But, you know, um, still, to be able to do this, it was a big leap. It was a big leap of faith. You know? <laughs> okay, you know, my my favorite poem is this one, Anandi Learns English. I just love it. Uh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. I had a lot of fun writing that uh, as well. And, um, you know, uh, some of it is, I mean, it whether this actually happened or not, I'm not sure. But I did read about, you know, her saying, you know, her husband saying you have to read in a, a you learn Aval Angrezi and things like that. So I put in whatever I could. I even went to the extent of looking for textbooks of that time. Like what book oh might God. she have read in order to learn English? Yeah, yeah. And it was very fascinating because then I came across these primers, right? Like because we have our syllabus when we, you know, when we went to school, we got prescribed textbooks. But then I looked into what type of textbooks were existed back then? What did the missionaries use? You know, I went to that extent. <laughs> oh, I never thought of poetry as requiring, you know, I'm just thinking of poetry. Uh, I mean, you think of it like, yeah, people sit down and write it, but you don't think of the, you know, the, the research aspect of it, which I'm sure, I mean, I mean, if Browning was writing, what, Fra Lippo Lippi, he must have done something, you know, to <laughs> you right, know, right. have that picture of my last duchess, you know, which are the right, poems right. I thought of when I was reading this because of the kind of voice, um, you know, giving voice to right, somebody right. else. But uh, yeah, so maybe everybody does, you know, is it the same with other works that you've done or this is a particular? Uh, no, I mean... 
in my in my previous book that was very autobiographical and so i was drawing from my own experiences from my life and you know as such i didn't have to do any research in that regard except you know mine my own memories right <laughs> but in this case in this case uh, i i did a lot of research and it and my research went off into different tangents which you know might lead to other projects like especially yeah. about the circus um and also finding out that um modern american dance is actually steeped in indian dance because um right after anandibai left um in the late 1800s and early 1900s notch dancers came from india and performed in new york um and other places and um yeah yeah and the so called mother of uh, modern american dance ruth saint denise she went to these performances and she was inspired by the notch dancers she even would dress up as radha and perform and things like that so there 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 there's so much indian history intertwined with american history and the whole root of um, american modern dance or or rather the roots of modern american dance are steeped in indian dance who knew and um, these are things i discovered while researching anandibai so uh, it's really fascinating that you know just looking at one subject can open doors to so many different things yeah yeah, yeah who would have who knew <laughs> you know yeah exactly exactly who knew and so i i think i'm going to be doing a lot more um you know literary excavation <laughs> <laughs> okay So, which one's your you know personal favorite? Oh, that is so hard. Uh, you know, well, the one which I read that the, yes. the that one um, that what that is one of my favorites. But also, um, I let me see. Nam Karin is one of my favorites. That which okay. is um, the second poem. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to read it? Would you like it? Yes, yeah. yes, Easy. I'd love to. So, um, like like many other women, right? Um, Anandi Bai was born. with a different name and when she got married then um she was renamed anandi but her birth name was yamuna because she was born on yamuna jayanti right so um so i wanted to write about that because you know for until the age of 9 or 10 she was known as yamuna or yamu every everyone called her yamu apparently and then suddenly you know not only is she being you know sent to another family but her whole identity is being obliterated and she's being given a different name right so i thought it was very important to talk about naming and also to talk about how naming is one of those things which is also very ephemeral and um so that's and and when we have a namkaran you know how it's anointed with holy water and stuff which is water right and water also evaporates and disappears so i wanted to try and bring all of those things into this poem you know about how a girl's life is so ephemeral especially in that time period in indian yes. girl's life right yes yes so naming namkaran i is it really true that being named after a river is bad luck a turbulent life are all women rivers then and tell me the story again of how i came to be a paisley in your belly why you named me daughter of the blinding sun sister of the lord of death tumbling down to earth to meet her blue beloved how i was born the same day as a goddess riverine whose holy drops the priest sprinkled on my forehead 11 days after my birth introducing me to this world whispering into my ear yamuna 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 a contract signed in water a girl's fate sealed lovely and 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 the poem flows like that as well right exactly exactly it's in the shape it's in the shape of a river and i tried to do that for some of the poems in here um it's i mean known as concrete poetry as well right where what you're talking about takes that shape as well like yes. i have another poem called consumption which um is in the shape of a sickle um you know and i wanted to um show oops I'm sorry. Um yeah, I I wanted to talk about the violence which Anandibai experienced, but I also wanted to foreshadow how, you know, um she would be cut down by tuberculosis and so the yes. poem is called Consumption for that reason as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know um if you saw that one, but yeah, that's so that, I know I've read all of them, another... but I don't think I noticed the shape of it. This one I noticed. Yeah. Now Kiran I noticed. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know why I didn't. It's on page 14. It's on page 14. So that's in the shape of sickle. And um, then, yeah, I like playing around with space as well. So like, yeah, I mean, I have couplets and I have, you know, poems which have different spacing in it as well. Just so, you know, to let the words breathe as well. And and then in the poems, which are the contrapuntal ones between Gopal Rao and Anandi Bai, um, you know, I have um, words in bold where like, yes. you know, if it's Anandi Bai in bold and if it's her husband, it's not in bold just to show the contrast and things like that. So, yeah, I, I've done a lot of different things because life is not static. And I wanted to show that through the text as well. Right. When when writing about somebody's life. Yeah. Okay, great. And on that note, we'll, we'll end this yeah. lovely conversation. For the listeners, go out and get Anandi by Joshi, A Life in Poems by Shikha Mal- Ma- Malavya. And thank you so much for talking to me, Shikha. It's been... Uh, thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HD Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com. Hold up. 